navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me on this chilly Northeast fall Monday. Not used to having to kick off CLEs on Monday, so we all got to wake up and kick the week off. But I'm glad you're here and uh, looking forward to getting into part two. Uh, this is a short series because we've got we're going to run up until the holidays in December. So we got two more after this. Uh, but in part two today, we're going to talk about the investigation and commencing the action in a construction accident injury case. If you missed part one, you can catch it either at thementoresq.com or on my podcast, uh, the Mentor ESQ podcast, or on the Academy's website. Uh, you can go up, they have the uh, digital uh, download options to watch prior CLEs. So you can catch up, don't worry about it. And you can also get the materials that are online as well. So what we're going to talk about today is you've got somebody contacting you. Maybe it's a lawyer referring a case to you. Maybe it's the client themselves. Maybe it's a family member uh, about handling a potential case either on the plaintiff side or maybe it's a carrier calling you on the defense side uh, to jump into action when an accident occurred. And you're being asked to assess, is this uh, a case? Is it a case for the plaintiff? Is it a, you know, is it a good defensible case? Who's responsible? Who are the parties? Who are the players? What are the next step? What do we do? So always takes a little bit of time, a lot more so than in like an auto accident case or many other types of cases to see uh, the strengths and weaknesses and what's involved in a construction accident case. So as in all cases, you wanna do a good investigation. And I think most of you have been with me through the last few years of CLEs. And I talk about the importance of investigation in my how to litigate uh, a personal injury case and how to litigate a catastrophic auto accident case. And it's equally as important in a construction accident case. You need to get as much information as possible as soon as you can. Sometimes you're contacted right after the accident's happened when it's still an active construction site. Sometimes you're contacted a year or more later, possibly almost three years. The statute of limitations in New York is three years uh, to bring a case. And it's probably at least two years in most other jurisdictions, if not three. So um, sometimes you can get more information because it's an active site. We'll get into that. Sometimes you're stuck with what you can reclaim and dig up. So we're going to talk first about the investigation. And then after we get through all of that, we'll talk about commencing the action today. So one of the things that I'm going to do throughout the rest of the parts of this program is refer to a fact pattern, and you'll see it in my materials, of an actual case that I handled. I alluded to it in the first uh, part, where my client, his name is Gary Harrigan, great guy with Gary's blessing. Uh, I asked if I can use materials from his case, and he was happy to allow me to do so. So you will have materials from the Harrigan case uh, in the materials today and moving forward. Uh, they will be mostly unredacted. And I ask that you keep those to yourself and not share those with anybody. It's just for you guys to use. And Gary's fact pattern, uh, we learned about Gary's case while 
the construction site was still going on, but he was in the hospital. What happened to Gary, he was an iron worker back in the day, and his job was to, uh, at the moment, you know, was to take up in an aerial lift, uh, to take up one of the architects to take a look and inspect the work that they did on putting some bolts into a steel beam up really high. So they both get on their lanyards, they click in to uh, what's known as a scissor lift, because it's like a scissor that opens up as this thing goes up. And uh, they Gary gets in, they have their helmets on, and the architect gets in, they both clip their harnesses in, and the machine goes up. And as they're going up, 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 the higher they get, they start to notice it's starting to wobble. And at about somewhere between 15 and 20 feet in the air, it starts to really wobble, and then it tips over. And uh, Gary took the brunt of it. Uh, the architect who was with him, uh, she fortunately did not sustain serious injuries because he was in between her and the ground. And uh, Gary got really badly injured, uh, fractured pelvis, fractured legs, all kinds of really, really bad stuff happened to him. Uh, but he survived it. So that case comes to us to look into. And immediately we have to start thinking, is this a labor law case? And there are certain things that you want to start going through in your mind when you're assessing the fact pattern. And you want to find out, is this a 240 subdivision one case that we talked about last week, where there's a fall from a height? Well, it sounds like it to me, he fell from a height, certainly sounds like a 240 case. Uh, is this a 241 subdivision six case? Are there violations of the industrial code? Well, most likely, but we don't know until we start looking through the code and seeing uh, tipping lifts are involved. And maybe we find out what caused the lift to tip over. Uh, maybe there's some industrial code violations. And is this a labor law 200 case? Uh, did someone have active control and direction of the work uh, and they were negligent in failing to actively and properly direct and control his work? So we want to find out the answers to this, and we want to find out who are the players, who is the owner, who is the general contractor, because the owner and the general contractor have a non-delegable duty under labor laws 240 and 241, so we need to identify who they are. And what kind of lift was this? Where did the lift come from? Was it a product liability case? Was there a problem with the lift? Um, all of these things we need to find out to first of all, find out if we have a case and if we do, what do we need to look into and then uh, who the parties are, all right? So when this case came to us, it was, this took place at a big building, a tower going up near the UN, okay? So this wasn't a small project that was gonna wrap up anytime soon. So the first thing we did was dispatch our investigators to the work site, hey, this just happened, you know, a few days ago or last week. I think it was within a week that we were contacted. So get over there. See if you can get on the site. See if you can speak to some people. Find out what, what happened. Find out who the players are. See what you can learn. So if it's an active case, you want to dispatch your investigator. If you're on the defense side, my defense buddies out there, hey, everyone, uh, will often get the call. We just had a really bad accident. Uh, you know, you need to get over here. And most of my friends who do this work on the defense side, they have a hard hat in their office. They grab it, they throw on their boots if they have them, they get in the car and go. And they start looking because the defense can get on site. The plaintiffs uh, were usually not allowed on site. 
So uh, the defense uh, attorneys, you can get there. Walk around, speak to people, bring your investigator, bring your tape recorder and your iPhone, start taking photographs, start speaking to people. You want to find out who are the witnesses to this case. That's super important. So on the plaintiff side, we always ask our client, the injured party, uh, if they're alive. Sometimes we have a bad case like this and they don't survive. Uh, so it takes a little more work to try and find out what went on. But either way, you, you need to do a, a big detailed intake. So in this case, we, we got out to Gary and met with him right away, met him at the hospital. Fill us in, man. What happened? Who was with you? Why did it tip over? Were there any witnesses? Do you know uh, this device? Were there any problems with it? Walk me through what happened. So whether you're on the plaintiff or defense side, you got to get to the players involved and find out as much as you can. You also want to find out, you know, in my case, it was pretty obvious. It was a new building going up. And uh, he was fell from a lift uh, that tipped over at an elevation. So it was pretty clearly a 240 case off the outset. But maybe you have a case. We just filed suit on a case where I get a call that from a referring attorney uh, who wants to know if I'd be involved in the case. And he says, I think he was on a scaffold. I'm not sure. He was inside a building. Uh, and I'm asking, what was going on? Was it a renovation, an alteration? Was he just changing a light bulb? Uh, again, we went through in part one in Labor Law 240, what types of matters it'll apply to, whether it's new renovation, alteration, painting, cleaning. Uh, it's listed in the statute, and that's in the materials from part one. But you want to look through that and see if your case, if it's going to apply. Um, Maybe it will, maybe it won't. What if someone, you get a fact pattern where someone's at a construction site, a worker, and they fall through an opening in the ground? Is that a 240 case? Well, it depends. It depends how far they fell, right? Did they just lose their footing and, and get their toe in the opening and trip and get injured? Or did they fall down? If they fell down, was it a couple inches? Was it several feet? Um, so depending on the fact pattern that you get, it's your job, it's our job collectively as attorneys to immediately start assessing what do we think? Do we think it's a 240 case? Is there height related? Meaning did the person injured party fall from a height or did something fall from a height onto that person? Is it a potentially an, an industrial code violation that occurred? We know from the industrial code we talked about and it's in the materials and we even got some links that you can download it and search it that there are slipping hazards, uh, there are requirements to cover openings. So in the fact pattern where someone fell through an opening, we're gonna say, well, why'd they fall through? Was it not properly covered? Uh, that sounds like an industrial code violation. And if they fell through far enough, several feet, five feet, 10 feet, 20 feet, that sounds like it could be a 240 case. Let's find out what we can, all right? so. This is the time right at the outset when you learn about the case or learn about your potential involvement of the case, whether it's early on or later on, you have to start asking a lot of questions. You have to start digging in, finding out if there's any witnesses who you can speak with, either through an investigation or directly. Um, are there reports that were generated already that may have some information or the photos taken? These are all things that you want to look for when you first get that call 
about getting involved in this case. It's all part of the investigation. Were there videos of it? That's always the best, right? If there's a video footage of the accident or photographs taken showing, if not the accident itself, but maybe the, uh, the area you want to see, is it a mess? Is it a, is it a messy construction site? Usually they are. Um, is there, uh, whose responsibility was it to clean the site? Uh, in our case, with the lift tipped over, we wanted to find out why, you know, was it on something it shouldn't have been? Whose job was it to set up the lift to begin with for our guy to get in and operate it? Was our client, Gary, was he the right guy? Was he supposed to be operating it? Uh, did he potentially do something wrong? We talked about in part one how you can lose one of these cases if it turns out that you're, the plaintiff is the sole proximate cause. So in Gary's case, we wanted to find out, well, was it his fault? Did he tip it over? Is he the sole proximate cause? And you could be sure that's what the defense was looking at initially. Why did it tip over? Was it the plaintiff's fault? The injured party's fault? Maybe we've got a good defense here. And spoiler alert, this case went to the first department on the issue of sole proximate cause before it eventually got resolved. So you could be certain that that became a huge, huge issue and something we need to look into. Why did this thing tip over? Okay, so you're going to want to see photos if you can get them. You're going to send out preservation letters and claim letters immediately, immediately after you identify the potential parties involved. That's part of your in investigation. So you can send claim letters, preservation letters for equipment involved, uh, machinery involved, photographs, videos. This is all part of your initial investigation once you get retained on the case. Now, generally, uh, there will be some type of accident or incident report generated that will give you information. You want to get your hands on that. You want to ask your client, whether it's the plaintiff or the defense, was an accident report filled out uh, on any properly working construction site? It's standard practice to record the happening of an accident, uh, who was involved, what the injuries were, if there were witnesses, was there any machinery involved, at least a brief summary. So you're going to try and get that. Maybe your client already has a copy of it for you. Uh, maybe you need to request it. Maybe it's easy to get. Maybe it's hard to get. But it's something you need to try and find out. One of the things that's easiest to get is a workers' compensation accident form. And that's referred to as a C3. You'll hear all kinds of C forms involved in a workers' accident on the job that their employer is required to fill out. There are C2s, C3s, C5s. There are all kinds of forms that I'm, I may not know because I don't handle workers' compensation law, but uh, I do know that there are accident reports generated, and those are required to be filed by either the employer and or the injured party, and those are usually done pretty quickly, even when there's before lawyers are involved. So if there's a comp lawyer already involved, you're going to ask that comp lawyer to give you the file send you everything you can get if you're the plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, if you're the lawyer for the employer or for the GC or the owner, you're going to want to reach out to the employer uh, and say, give me everything. I want to see all the forms that you filed that document this accident, because that'll give you a jumping off point 
It'll identify oftentimes the employer for sure, because it's the employer's form, uh, who the owner is at the site is potentially on there, who the general contractor is. So you're gonna need to find out who they are. How do you do that? Well, if it's an active site, I personally have gone to the, the site of a construction accident. Uh, at any construction project, they are required to post permits because you have to have a permit if you're a company uh, working on a construction site and you have to post those. So those permits will list who the general contractor is, will list who the owner is, will list subcontractors. In our case, Gary was employed by a metal fabricating company called Coordinated Metals. He was an iron worker. And so we know that you cannot sue an employer in a third party case as a result of uh, violations of the labor law, but you can get a lot of information through that employer. So we're gonna look and see maybe somebody else hired Coordinated Metals, my client's employer. Uh, most likely they were hired by the general contractor. But sometimes there's a step in between. There's the general contractor, then there's another sub, and then they've hired uh, the injured party's employer. So you're going to look for that. And that investigation can be done by you, by an investigator, uh, or you can go to the Department of Buildings and pull permits. You can pull permits, uh, the ones that are supposed to be placed actively, or if this is later, and it's, a, it's an older case, you can dig back and pull the permits. Uh, that'll also show who the contractors were at the location. And then it's always important to do a deed search, okay, through the Department of Buildings uh, or the town or community, wherever the accident happened, you need to make sure you have the correct owner. Now, remember, the owner has a non-delegable duty. An out-of-possession owner is still going to be liable, okay? So you need to find out who that owner is because you need to bring your lawsuit when you put the case into litigation against the owner and the general contractor. Remember, their liability under two of the three labor laws we talked about last time, 240 and 241, their liability is non-delegable, meaning they cannot delegate it. Okay? They are ultimately in charge. So you need to make sure you have the correct owner. So you always wanna do a deed search uh, and pull the deed for the property location where it happened. Um, we've run into trouble a long time ago. We learned our lesson the hard way where we actually had an insurance company confirm for us who the owner was. Um, it was admitted in an answer, but then as we got further on into the case, it turns out they weren't the owner and we didn't have the proper owner on the deed named. Uh, so we had to do a lot of work to, to fix that. So do your homework. We just filed suit on a case last week where somebody was injured um, at the Marriott Marquis doing work and we needed to find out who the owner was. And there was all kinds of different things we were getting based on the deeds we found. So when in doubt, you name them all and you sort it out. And we'll talk about that when we get to commencing the action. Uh, Michelle, now's a good time if you wanna do the codes, take a pause. If you're joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is P-O-D-1-2-3. Again, that's P-O-D-1-2-3. All right. Um, so we're back in action here. And uh, am I up on the screen? Um, hopefully you're all seeing me. All right. So 
Next up, uh, we're going to talk about sometimes someone else has done an investigation on your behalf, and it's an entity known as OSHA. We've Many of us have heard about OSHA. If not, you'll certainly want to learn about OSHA. And what OSHA stands for is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And what OSHA is, is a governmental agency. Uh, they work within throughout the United States, uh, and they're part of the United States Department of Labor. And their job is to protect employees in the public and private sectors. And what will happen is when there's a bad accident at a workplace, usually at a construction accident site, OSHA sends in their investigators. And what's great about that is they do a lot of the work uh, for you. And they ask all the questions, they meet with people, they look into what's happened. And so you want to get OSHA's findings. You wanna find out if OSHA did an investigation and what they found. So one of the things that you'll see in the materials for today, um, I've enclosed, you've got my CV and, and some stuff about my podcast, but then I've also enclosed uh, from Gary's case, Gary Harrigan's case, a FOIL request. So you can use that sample. Uh, it is a FOIL request to OSHA. So you can just copy it. It's got the place to send it to that says we represent Gary Harrigan. He was involved in this accident. Can you please send us your investigative file and let us know if you found any violations or issued any citations? Because what OSHA will do is if they find that there's been a violation of uh, a labor law, uh, they will serve a citation on the employer or any of the other responsible parties and cite that violation and they'll find them. So you'll see in the materials here that um, Gary's employer, Coordinated Metals, was fined by OSHA, uh, and they cited them a couple of times, and you'll see the violations there, one of which was you know, a fall from an elevated device. Uh, and so they actually got fine money, and the employer or whoever gets cited by OSHA does have a right to dispute it. They can push back, uh, they can negotiate the fines, they can try and prove that they uh, did not violate any labor laws, uh, and they can get them fixed. Uh, but you will find uh, a wealth of information that will help you when you get these OSHA violations. Now, just a moment looking further down the road about what you can do with these OSHA violations Every defense lawyer I speak to say, they're not admissible. OSHA violations are not admissible. And they swear by it. I've gotten them in, and I find that they are admissible. So there's a dispute out there as to whether they're admissible or not. Um, but I don't see why they're not admissible. Uh, if it's against an entity who had a right to fight back on it, and uh, I don't see why it's not admissible. If it's a, a government organization, it's a public document. That's why you can get it under a FOIL request. And it's certainly relevant if they've found a violation. Now, whether or not it goes to the ultimate decision, there's other ways that you know uh, you can address it, whether you're on the plaintiff side or defense side to argue it. But moving aside the issue of whether or not OSHA's citations for violations are admissible, they certainly help you in building your case. They're certainly fair game to ask about <laughs> when you're doing your depositions. And we'll talk about depositions in the next part next month. 
but it's great to get these depositions and say, you're aware that you or your subcontractor or the plaintiff's employer got cited for a violation of the labor law for not having X, Y, and Z, whether it's a scaffold or proper safety devices or another person to monitor or whatever it may be. Um, are you aware of that? Yeah, we're aware of it. Well, did you look into it? Do you disagree with it? Why do you disagree with it? Um, was it remedied the situation? Did you fight it? Did you object to it? I want all the correspondence of your objections, uh, any testimony you gave. Did you go to a hearing? Did you just settle the claim? So OSHA violations are a bounty of information that can help you. So you certainly want to get out that FOIL request as soon as possible, okay, and use that. Now, in our case, there was a piece of machinery involved, and it was a, a scissor lift, and it was manufactured by a company called Genie, like Genie in a bottle. So we were curious, did it fail? Is this a product liability case? Um, one of the things that you'll learn if you new to handling construction accident cases involving machinery is that most of the time the machinery is rented uh, by the general contractor or the employer. There are companies that have all different types of man lifts, aerial lifts, backhoes, uh, every type of device you can think of, uh, and they rent them so that big companies can just get the equipment they need and they have it delivered to the construction site and they pay for a rental fee for however long they need it. And then there becomes a question is, who trains the operators? We were curious whose job was it to train Gary on operating this piece of equipment? If we were to assume it was his job to use it, he was doing his job, um, how is he supposed to know how to safely operate this? How is he supposed to know the safety features of this piece of equipment? Is his employer required to train him? Is the general contractor required to train him? Uh, is Genie, the manufacturer, required to train him? Or is it the rental company who delivers it who's required to train him? So these are things that you want to look into as the case is building and as you're getting into it because you may not know the answer and there may not be a simple answer. In fact, there usually isn't. What I can tell you anecdotally is we learned that it's generally the rental company's job to give a brief overview on the equipment that they deliver to the uh, employees who are expected to be using it. They're required to leave a user manual with any piece of equipment. Uh, then whose job it is to see that the user manual is looked at or read um, that can become a big debate. I'm sure the employers and the GCs will say, well, it's the user's job to read the user manual. It was Gary's job to use the user manual. Manual. We litigated that issue also. Gary says, what, I'm going to stop work that I'm getting paid and told to work fast and efficiently, and I'm going to tell him I'll be off sitting off to the side for a couple hours as I read the manual that's 200 pages? That doesn't happen. There are a lot of things that we as lawyers read and learn about that uh, you know, we try and argue on both sides, but then there's the reality of what goes on at a construction site. And the reality is what actually is gonna dictate in these cases, okay? Not just what we read, but the reality of the site. So we'll talk about that as far as your arguments and depositions when we get into it. But if there is machinery involved, you have to do your investigation. 
I personally looked into everything I could find about this make and model. Once I learned it was a genie lift and what height and what model it was, you want to learn everything you can. And the good thing is these days you can download pretty much anything. I was pulling up Google images. I was downloading the user manual or the operator manual. I was learning about the safety features and I learned all kinds of useful stuff. I laugh, I walk around town with my friends or my family and I see all these different lifts and I can tell them, oh, I know how that one goes up and down. I know how that one, how you put out the extenders. Uh, I know the safety features on this and that device because that's what we have to do to be good at our work. We have to learn everything. So in a construction accident case, you have to learn about the equipment. And we needed to find out in Gary's case, is this a product case? Do we think there's something wrong? Was there a product defect? If it is, is it our obligation to prove it? Or does that fall on the employer for giving them a defective lift? We don't have to prove it's a defect. They have a duty to give him a safe uh, lift, a safety device to help him get up to these elevated areas. So it's not our job to prove a product liability case. Where is it? These are things that I bet you're wondering what the answer is. And I can tell you that the way we decided to litigate this case it was our position that if they gave him a lift that was not sufficient to provide him with proper safety protection uh, to work at an elevated height, then it's a non-delegable duty that they violated under 240. They didn't provide him, Gary, with the proper safety devices. It's on them. And if they want to point the finger and make a product liability case out of it and bring a product liability case against the manufacturer of the lift, let them do it. It's not our problem. They owe the plaintiff a non-delegable duty. That means you cannot delegate and say, sorry, we thought the lift was going to be working properly and we got a bad one. You can't delegate. It's non-delegable. So the good news is, is that we did not have to make out a product liability case. The reality is, is that we didn't feel that there was one. Chances are, if we had reason to believe that it was a defective lift we probably would have brought a product liability case against the lift manufacturer in tandem and as part of the case. But we didn't see that there was a strong product liability case. And we were comfortable with the knowledge that the owner of the work site, as well as the general contractor, had a non-delegable duty that it would be their problem. And it was kind of funny turning defense counsel into a plaintiff's product expert. And, uh, and we had a lot of conversations about that. Uh, and whether or not they were going to get out of the case uh, or get indemnification uh, or some type of contribution or loss transfer. That's a word that my colleagues uh, are nodding their head at is uh, the responsibility of the owner's counsel, the general contractor's counsel, uh, is to transfer loss. And that's your job if you're a defense lawyer involved in a construction accident case is, wait a second, we may have a non-delegable duty but we did our job right and we had really good contracts with our general contractor. Our general contractor had good contracts with the subcontractors and the plaintiff's employer where they're all going to indemnify us. They're going to make sure, even though we can't legally delegate it, we know that we're going to get sued if a worker gets badly injured. And we want to make sure we could turn around and say, hey, we're getting sued. It's your obligation per contract. Uh, to indemnify us, to cover us with your insurance policy for this, because 
you signed off on this contract. And that's where getting into these contracts can get really crazy in these cases. So the first thing you're going to do as a defense attorney is find out, wait a second, let's get all the contracts here. I want to see the contracts between the defense, uh, the owner, I'm sorry, the GC, the GC and the subs, make sure we have uh, that loss transfer and let them pick up the defense and pay for the insurance. So that's part of the investigation also is getting all these contracts and we always demand them. But we had to find out if the machinery is something we need to be worried about. So what we did is we hired an expert early on in this case and I've enclosed his expert report. Gentleman's name is Les Knoll. You can look through the report and we arranged for an inspection of an early pre-litigation inspection of this lift. We identified all the players involved. They all got counsel pretty early on and we are found out where the lift was and we arranged for an inspection of it where a designated person was gonna operate it, show us it going up and down and putting out the levelers and seeing if they worked, seeing how it is they're supposed to have built in tilt alarms that lock them down and you can't go up any higher unless this lift is level. So the question was, how did it continue to go up and up if it wasn't level and if it could tilt over without the safety features locking in? So we had to really look into all this and try and find out what's going on. Uh, and that's why we paid the money early on to get an expert, to get them involved, to read up on the lift, uh, to explain it to us. And you'll see that in the report, in the materials, we have a thorough report explaining how the lift is supposed to work, what the safety features are, and why it would tilt over, okay? And we learned a lot. We learned that on this lift, they had levelers that you have to activate that you may not even know this lift has them. And they basically, they're little legs that go out on the front and back on each side of the lift that lock it down and level it. And if the lift starts to go up, there's a level inside the lift. And if it gets out of whack, it's gonna shut the lift down and set off an alarm. And that didn't happen in this case. So we had to look into that. But the purpose of having an, invest, uh, an expert early on as part of the investigation helped us identify whether or not it was a product case, whether or not it was user error, helped us sort of recreate what we thought this case might be uh, based upon and why it happened and what our theories are. And ultimately, it came down to saying, look, ultimately, Whatever it is, it is a non-delegable duty when someone is working at an elevated height to make sure that they are given the proper safety devices, whether that's a lift, whether it's scaffold, whether it's railing, whether it's clipped off harnesses, it is the employer, I'm sorry, it is the owner and the general contractor's non-delegable duty to make sure if they're going to put somebody high up in the air to do something, they better find out. Uh, the best safety device to make sure that that person doesn't fall and get badly injured, okay? And the only defense they're going to have is sole proximate cause. They gave everything, they were arguing, they gave everything to our client, and the sole proximate cause of this accident was user error, it was my client's fault, therefore they're not obligated to us. Our argument was there are a lot of other um, problems you can maybe argue he was negligent and that maybe he didn't set something up right, but you can't say it's sole proximate cause. And that's where you really get involved with good brief writing, summary judgment, uh, motions, appellate motions. Uh, that's going to be the fourth part of this series. The third part next month will be depositions, what we need to do to prepare and what we need to get out of them. 
The fourth part is going to be the law and summary judgment motions and, and, and where you go from there. That's generally where a lot of these cases ultimately get decided uh, is from the courts. Okay, so let's get now with the remaining 15 minutes or so before we go to the Q&A. I think as most of you know, I will take all the Q&As uh, from 2 to 2.30. Uh, there's not a lot in there now, so please fire away uh, in the Q&A down at the bottom of the, of the task bar here, and I'll address all of them between 2 and 2.30. Uh, but let's get into commencing the action and drafting the complaint. All right, that's what we're going to talk about now. So you've done your investigation, as we did in Gary's case. We found out who the owner was. We found out who the general contractor, whose employer, uh, the lift that was involved. And we wanted to make sure that we named all the parties that could potentially be in the case that we could identify. Remember, in New York State, and I believe in most states, we rely on the theory of general pleading. What that means is you don't have to get into detail like the 20 some odd page report in the materials of our expert and put all that into a complaint. Some people like to put a ton, ton of detail in complaints. Some don't. In federal court, you have to generally give a little bit more detail than in state court. But in state court, you don't have to give a lot of detail. And I'm gonna show you the complaint that we drafted for Gary's case uh, and walk you through sort of what we did and the decisions we made. And a couple of decisions have to be made at the outset. First of all, who you're going to name as a party. Secondly, what are your theories? What are you going to plead as your causes of action? Is it negligence? Is it the labor laws? Is it something else? Thirdly, where are you going to bring the lawsuit? Are you going to bring it in federal court? Are you going to bring it in state court? And if you're going to bring it in state court, Where's your actual um, county? Where are you going to file it in state court? Where can you file it? Where should you file it? So we go through this process every time as we sit down to draft the complaint. First, let's talk about the parties. So in Gary's case, we had to identify the owner of the site, the general contractor, if there are any other subs between his employer, Coordinated Metals, and the general contractor, um, the manufacturer of the lift, and who brought the lift to the site, the rental company. So I'm gonna share with you, I'm gonna do a screen share briefly, our complaint. And I believe it's on page um, 47 of your PDF materials, if you wanna scan and scroll to that. And uh, unless Michelle tells me otherwise, I'm gonna assume that you are seeing the first page of the complaint and it's signed off by my father, Guy. This was back in 2014 over eight years ago when this uh, case was filed and the accident happened back then as well. And you're gonna see right on this first page, a couple of things of note. We brought it in New York County State Court. We named GZ10UNP Realty LLC. We found them out to be the owner of this tower going up. They owned it. Len Lease US Construction LMB Inc huge construction building company. They build skyscrapers and big buildings everywhere. We determined that they were the general contractor. Now, sometimes you'll find their definition as project manager and not necessarily general contractor. They're usually interchangeable. It's possible you can have a contract 
a general contractor and a project manager, but it's usually one or the other. And they generally serve the same function of running the job, running the construction. You have the owner, the owner hires a company whose job it is to bring in all the subcontractors to run the actual construction project. And Len Lease is a big builder. So they were the GC, as we call it, general contractor, or the project manager on this case. Then you'll see we named Genie Industries. They're the manufacturer of the lift. And United Rentals North America. They are the rental company. They, own, they owned the lift uh, as part of their fleet of rental equipment, and they delivered it to the job site. And how did we know it was United Rentals? Well, there was a big sticker on the side of the Genie lift that said United Rentals. That's how we knew. And we named them not because we we're going to plead a products case, which you'll see we did not plead, but because we wanted to find out if perhaps they were negligent in failing to um, deliver the unit properly, failure to train properly, if the evidence would establish it was their duty as the owner or the rental company to properly train Gary to make sure that an accident like this didn't happen. So we wanted to name all of these individuals, uh, individual companies, rather. And don't worry if you get it wrong, because many, many times we are amending the complaint after we first file it. We'll get a call from our adversary or one of counsel, one of the defense counsel saying, yeah, you named the wrong owner or you named the wrong GC or you need to add this. They're not on it. And then you just ask for documents and proof so you feel comfortable, and then you can change it. So in a case we just filed, as I mentioned, involving the Marriott, we had a couple different names came out as the owner. So we name them all, we plead them all as the owner, and then it'll get sorted out. And we find out from the lawyers when they get involved who the actual owner is, and we get the documents showing it, then we'll discontinue uh, and we can revise the caption. Or if we have some wrong parties, then you could always amend the caption. So my personal preference in pleading is more is better. Uh, add everybody that you have a legitimate basis for believing is the owner and or general contractor and or intermediary subcontractors who hired the employer and bring them all in. And that's what we did here. And that's why we brought in Genie and United. We could always discontinue against them. And oftentimes there's going to be cross claims uh, where these parties are all going to be suing each other. So you bring them into the caption. You try and bring most of them in as a plaintiff's lawyer. The only one who you cannot bring in is the employer. Um, and I think I just mis misspoke. As the plaintiff's lawyer, you want to bring everybody in that you can except the employer. And then that employer will usually get brought in as a third-party complaint uh, from one or more of the main defendants who you have sued. Uh, and that's ended up what, what happened here is there were some additional third-party actions and fourth-party actions and a lot of additional names that came up that the defendants brought in as part of the loss transfer to try and say, if we're going to get hit uh, under our non-delegable duty, we believe these other parties are the ones who have to pay and we want to make sure that they're brought into the case. So that's why we named everybody that you see listed here. And then you'll see their locations. So the owners in New York, New York, Len Lease's New York, New York, Genie's in Washington State headquarters, United Rentals in Connecticut. Our client 
if I scroll down, you'll see lives in, at the time, lived in Lindenhurst, which is Suffolk County. So we decided we didn't have diversity, true diversity. Sorry, I went back into the report. We didn't have diversity of citizenship. So we had no basis to bring this into New York County. For diversity of citizenship, you have to have everybody on both sides of the V on different locations. So you can't have a New York plaintiff and a New York defendant and go in federal court under diversity. So here that wasn't an option for us. So we had to choose state court. And uh, if you want to learn about my thoughts between state or federal, uh, please visit my prior uh, lectures, either through the podcast, through the Mentor ESQ site, or through the Academy, uh, where I talk about the pros and cons of choosing a state court versus federal court. Uh, and then you can decide if you have diversity, if you want to bring the case in federal court. This one against the Marriott, we just decided to bring in federal court under diversity in the Southern District because our clients from New Jersey and all the other defendants were from New York and elsewhere. Uh, and we like the ability to move cases fast in federal court and feel comfortable there. So we brought that there. But this case was brought in New York County uh, because it was either going to be New York County or Suffolk County. Um, my office is in New York County. I feel that uh, we had a better shot in New York County. Uh, I'm much more comfortable in New York County than Suffolk. I feel the potential jury values would be better in New York than Suffolk. Some of you might disagree. I know many of you are practice in Suffolk and love it there and know the players. You might have brought this case in Suffolk County, uh, which might have been a good idea. But that's why we brought it in New York County. Okay. And then after you've done that, you serve everyone. Uh, you put on the defendants where you list where you're going to serve them at the bottom here. And then you go through your causes of action. Now, in this complaint, um, there's always, always what I call the regular negligence cause of action. And that's the first cause of action which we have in this complaint. And by the way, feel free to use this complaint as a sample. It worked. Okay. Uh, it's pretty simple, you'll see, pretty straightforward, but it's a real nice sort of boilerplate complaint. And there, it doesn't need to be any fancier than this, no matter how big the case. And this ended up being a big case. Um, so you have a first cause of action. Just like any other complaint, you identify all the parties. Okay. So we go through here. We identify all the parties. You'll see we list, we identify the owner in paragraph two. We identify the um, general contractor in paragraph three. Uh, we identify Genie, uh, United Rentals. Then we get through the basic allegations of who is the owner, who is the rental company, who is the general contractor, okay? We talk about what happened on the date of the accident on January 13th. Very simple, okay? You look at paragraph 14, uh, he was performing work uh, when the lift suddenly and without warning toppled over, causing him to sustain catastrophic and devastating personal injuries. We didn't have to get into more details than that. Basic pleading, folks. All right, it was negligent that that happened. There was negligence involved. Gary did not, uh, was not part of the negligence. That's paragraph 16. So in paragraph 17, that's the wherefore clause. You don't have to put in the damages amount in New York. Um, and uh, that's the negligence. That's sort of the catch-all. Then we go from there and then we get into the three labor law. Uh, statutes that we spoke about that are applicable in construction accident injury cases like this one. Uh, so the so we get into second cause of action. You'll see is 
200 of the labor law. That's sort of the, what I said, sort of the construction accident law uh, of negligence. That's when you can show active involvement notice. That's not a non-delegable duty. That's your fallback one. If you can't make out a 240 or 241, but you need to plead it. Um, so it's very simple. You reiterate and reallege all the earlier stuff. And then you say they violated section 200 of the labor law. And that's it. And by reason of the foregoing, that's your wherefore. And then the third and fourth clauses of action, again, cites a 240. We don't even need to say 240 subdivision one. It's 240. There's lots of subdivisions. And here we're alleging 240. You could get into the details and you will once you get into the case, once you do your bill of particulars and you have to cite all the codes and the statutes and be specific. But for general pleading, just doing what I have here is sufficient. So we have our fourth cause of action is 240. One, our third cause of action is 240. And then our fifth cause of action is just the consortium one for Gary's wife, Kathy, okay? Which is what you must file when you have a spouse whose, uh, whose other spouse was the injured party. And then we ask for judgment on all of these actions and we sign off, we're good to go, okay? And there you go, and there you have your complaint. Now, each complaint is going to be different. The parties are going to be different, who you list. Um, the venue is going to be different. But that is a very good basic sample uh, for even a very heavy, serious construction accident injury case with lots of moving parts. That complaint will get you going. It'll put it in. You'll serve it on all the defendants. And it'll put them on notice of a person who's at a lift. It gives them the players. If you're a defense lawyer and you get this complaint and you're learning about this accident for the first time, it gives you enough information to start making calls to your client, uh, to your uh, subs, to the owner, uh, looking into your contracts, finding out what's going on, uh, and start deciding who you want to bring in as a third party, um, who you want to uh, send letters to to demand indemnification, uh, contribution from. All right. So, um, that's how you get going with a complaint. You spell it all out, you identify, make sure no matter what, always put all three causes of action in there. Now, if we wanted to make a products case out of it, we would have done that in the same complaint. We would have alleged that as an additional cause of action, a products case against um, Genie as the manufacturer. We would add in, in the products case, United as the rental company, because they're in the chain of distribution. Uh, we'll talk about product liability at a future CLE. I think I may hit that one next fall. I'm thinking about doing one on medical malpractice for uh, after the new year for a couple of series, uh, you know, parts, and then we'll do products in the fall. I'll always come up with something for you, but um, that's where you would plead all the products in the same complaint. You bring them all together because the issues are intertwined, okay? And um, you always want to make sure you bring everybody potentially in. You know, here we didn't have a concern about whether there would be sufficient insurance coverage because we knew we were dealing with big time companies, big owner building a skyscraper in New York, Len Lease. I mean, these are all big time companies that have lots of insurance and lots of assets. But if you're dealing with a small construction job in Queens or Brooklyn or out on the island or uh, in Rockland or Orange County, you're not going to have these big time companies. You're going to hope you have insurance coverage. 
because uh, some of you may nod your head along with me that you have some of these cases that aren't big construction accident, but fill, still fall within the labor law where the general contractor, uh, the owner has no coverage at all. And the general contractor has a policy that doesn't cover workers at the site, only covers passerby and there, there's nothing there. So you run into problems. So make sure you identify everybody you could possibly bring in because that'll give you the ability to uh, look further into insurance coverage. And sometimes we as a plaintiff have to roll up our sleeves, folks, and get into it and try and identify uh, who's going to be obligated to pay at the end of the day. Don't just sit back and rely on defense counsel to do it. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD664. Again, that's POD664. Thanks, Michelle. And um, just following up on that last poll, if you're not a member of the Academy, you really need to join, especially if you're getting the benefit of tons of CLEs. Uh, you know, it's a small investment. If you've already participated in a CLE, you'll get a discount. And uh, it's just such a great organization. And once you join, then you can get on the board, you can get on the committees, you can, you know, have your finger on the pulse of what's going on with legislation like the Grieving Families Act and, you know, really be even more part of the community that we've built here over the last many, many years. So I encourage you to do that. But I think I've given you all that you need to get going to investigate and commence the action. And what we'll do now is we're going to go to the Q&A. Well, I'll do my best to answer any questions that are posed there and I ask you to place those there. Uh, but if you don't want to stay, uh, you're free to go. You got your one credit. Uh, you don't need to stay for the Q&A. And I look forward to seeing you ne the next part, unless Michelle comes up with some other reason, if there's another holiday to reschedule that I didn't know about, uh, like we had to do this week, it'll be November 2nd, I believe. And we'll be talking about depositions uh, and how to prepare and conduct and what to look for and what the goal is for depositions in a construction accident injury case. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, please uh, tune in uh, for next month. We always launch the podcast, which has the audio version of what we're doing here today, usually about a week after uh, we do this. And you could always go back and, um, and listen to the older ones as well. All right. And if you haven't yet, please schedule one on one with me. Just go to the mentoresq.com. It's on the homepage, complimentary 30 minute sessions. Uh, I did two today, which were my 30, 135th and 136th one-on-ones I've done in the last year. So I haven't met you. I'm dying to do so. So please sign up uh, to meet with me. Okay. So let's get to the questions now. I will take them in order of which they were posted and do my best. I already see some people have responded. Uh, and I thank you for that. You've obviously been in uh, other programs that I've given lectures on. I do not know everything by any means. I just share what I know and what I think is helpful. There are many of you who know a lot more than me in specific areas. So if you know more about OSHA, if you know about laws or rules or regulations in this area, chime in and please do so. All right, so the first question I'm seeing is, what type of accidents does OSHA investigate? How minor can they be? I believe it usually has to be a pretty significant accident. Uh, they're not going to do uh, you know, a small project in one of the outer boroughs or in the burbs. Uh, it usually has to be uh, a big site, lots of permits, uh, and a serious injury 
that they will investigate. That's been my experience. I'm not sure what the threshold technically is, but usually if there's a report of a serious injury or death at a construction site, they will investigate. I have not called on an OSHA investigator to testify at trial. Uh, I think that someone says later on here, uh, Gary chimed in that there's a federal statute that says they cannot be subpoenaed to testify at trial. Uh, and that sounds right to me. Usually when you run into um, government, US department employees, uh, they're not allowed to testify at trial because they know it would just take away from them. They'd be spending way too much time testifying. I ran into that in a product liability case where I wanted to subpoena for a deposition and for trial. Uh, an investigator from the Com Consumer Product Safety Commission that investigated a product that we uh, were litigating as defective. And they cited to a statute and said they can't do it. They can't testify for us. They're supposed to be totally independent. They do their investigation. They file the reports and that's it. Okay. Um, do PJI requests to charge recognized OSHA violations? That's a great question of whether or not a pattern jury instruction uh, will hold a violation as negligence per se. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, PJI is the pattern jury instructions and they are the charges that a judge gives to the jury on the complete, complete, completion of summations. And that's the law that the jury has to consider. Generally, there's a section on violations of statutes and uh, for the easiest one is the VTL, the vehicle traffic law. Uh, if someone makes a left turn and there's a VTL statute that says you're not allowed to make a left turn unless you have clearance to do so, uh, and your case involves that, you can have the judge charge the jury that that's a violation of the statute that we've submitted evidence for. And if a jury finds that that statute is violated, they can find that that is negligence per se. Um, I have not gotten that far, frankly, where I've asked for the charge. Uh, I'm seeing that uh, Daniel is uh, citing lower down that the fourth department is saying it's not a violation of an OSHA reg for 241 subdivision six. He cites some cases. They did hold that it can be considered as some evidence of negligence in a labor law 200 case. So again, so many of the departments and so many of these fact patterns really turn on the department you're in. Uh, you know, one department can hold one way, another department can hold another. So I would just research on all these. I'm not the lawman. I'm not the guy who's arguing these appeals. I hire uh, some specialists who know these cases off the top of their head and know the departments and how they apply. So um, if you have the situation and you really, really need to get it in, uh, do your research and be, make your persuasive argument and try and get it in. All right, Andrew is asking me, and Daniel Bronk, thank you for citing to those cases. Uh, that's really helpful, uh, and I appreciate that. If anybody else has cases on OSHA and they want to post them here in the Q&A for everybody's use in the different departments, please do so. That's a benefit that we all can uh, receive. All right, Andrew Ferguson is asking, why can't you bring in the employer? In New York State, and in almost every state, I believe, uh, a, a worker is not allowed to sue an employer when it's an injury that occurs on the job. The ex there are exceptions. Uh, there are exceptions in New York City. 
Certain New York City employees can sue their employer. Uh, for example, a teacher uh, injured on the job can sue the New City of New York uh, because it's part of their um, contract that they've bargained, that they have that right. So you wanna look in and see in your specific case, whether or not there's some contractually bargained agreement where the employee can sue the employer. But for the most part, and especially in these construction accident cases, uh, you are not allowed to sue your employer. You are barred by workers' compensation. That's why they bring in lawyers and law firms like me, because I don't handle workers' compensation. I handle what we call the third-party case. Uh, and that is where I say you get the big bucks, because you don't get big bucks in comp. You get fixed fees for your loss of wages, for your economic loss, for your physical pain and suffering from your injuries or on a scale. Uh, but it's the third party cases that I bring, my law firm brings. That's where you get the big bucks, where you look about future pain and suffering, past pain and suffering, future loss of income. That's where we bring in the life care plans, the economists, and really work up the numbers to get an award that there's no way you can get uh, on comp. Okay. Um, Okay, not sure if Dorothy's saying, not sure if I include the actual address of the accident on my complaint. Okay, then maybe I didn't. Let's see here. Did I say where the accident occurred? Okay, I'm looking, I'm looking. The owner of a premises under construction, um, place of business, aforesaid premises. Yeah, we keep talking about aforesaid premises, premises, there we go. Uh, yes, uh, number six, we did identify the premises as 823 First Avenue, okay? That was the premises under construction that we referred to. So yeah, you should be putting the, the location of the accident in there. And if um, you don't, then you need to do it and you can always amend, okay? All right. Um, where else? All right. Samantha is asking, what is the admissibility of the OSHA report? Do you need to get it certified to introduce? What can it be used for? So I have never gotten to the point of having to offer it into evidence. I've gotten to the point of arguing it, filing eliminate motions, but the cases where it's been a big issue have resolved for me and I haven't had to go to trial uh, to the point where I've had to put an OSHA report into evidence. But I would certainly try. And if you've got a good one, I would certainly try. I would request a certified copy. I would argue that it's a public document. Uh, I would argue there's exceptions to needing it certified. I'd look up everything you could. It's a business record. I'd serve notice of the introduction to introduce it, of the plan to introduce it on, on your adversary. So um, I would I'd argue everything and anything to try and get it in. Um, it probably is similar to the rules of a police report, and I've had that decided both ways. I've had judges put the police report in. I've had them not. I've had them put pressure on my adversary to say, I'm not going to make the plaintiff subpoena a witness, a record person, just to put it in. Uh, so you're going to have to sort that out. I can't give you a, a straight answer. Um, Settlement of an OSHA violation stating that it is not an omission is not admissible. Daniel citing a case from the second department. Go Daniel. So I'm going to put Daniel on, on the team. He's officially on this team. He's the guy to reach out to and direct chat questions about different departments on what is and what is not admissible. So a settlement may not be admissible, but 
if you get the deposition of the person who decided to settle it and you ask them why they did or what did they determine or did they push back? Uh, did they submit any evidence to show they did not uh, violate? Those are all the types of ways that you get around it. And that's what we're going to talk about next month. And that's what you really need to focus on is how you use the information in those OSHA violations and those settlements that you can get a record of uh, in statements that are given uh, by the employer who acknowledge things, who dispute things. Um, that's how you get your, in essence, you're not putting needing to put the actual violation in or the report in or the citation, but because you know it's there and because you know they settled it, you can get the deposition of the certain individuals involved in those decisions to settle or to push back and see what they did, what they submitted, what documents, um, and use that in the case. That's where you can do the work around, okay? Um, John, hey, John, thanks for joining today, is saying if you pull the permits for the project and find a multitude of contractors, how do you decide who to include in the lawsuit? So what I will do is pull all the deeds, see all the contractors, and if they're all showing that they're on site for this project, then I'll do research on them. So if I see, you know, um, ABC Contracting Corp was pulled and I look them up and I see that they're a, um, a Mason and this case didn't involve anything involving Masons, then I wouldn't name them. Uh, if I see they're a scaffold company, and my case is involving scaffold, then I'll name them. Uh, so I will look them up. I'll look to see what kind of trade they are. Uh, then I'll reach out to my client. I'll say, do you know if this entity was there? Did you ever see ABC contracting around the time you were working? I'll ask the witnesses. I'll send the claim letter, and then I'll follow up, and I'll say, were you at the job during this time period? And if they send me an affidavit saying, no, we were there uh, last year uh, laying the foundation and I can get you an affidavit saying that, then uh, we won't include them. So that's part of your homework that you have to do is really try to see um, you know, if they were involved or not. Uh, you don't wanna just create extra work and name them in the lawsuit. So try and do your due diligence to find out whether they were anyhow involved or not, okay? Um, Steve is saying in a runner type case where the uncontrolled descent of a heavy object causes injury to a worker, is that strictly a 240 case? Or am I aware of any code violations which may make it a 241 sub six case? Steve, I love it. That's a fact pattern that I can't give you an answer to. I'd have to find out more facts. I'd have to find out you know, the differential with how far did that uncontrolled descent occur? Did it roll down a ramp? Did it get dropped? Um, you know, there's so many different things. What caused it to roll? Uh, you know, what was going on there? I know that there's sections involving ramps in the industrial code. So I'd look at all of those. Again, one of the things I mentioned in part one that I really encourage you to do is download a PDF uh, version of the industrial code, which is searchable. And if I were you, I would just go to the search button and I type in ramp, look up every case involving ramp. Uh, I type in, you know, descent, uh, rolling, object, and just keep looking. You have to just be a pit bull. You have to look and look and look. Do it once, do it twice. Ask a colleague or an associate to review. Do your homework, do research. So it could or couldn't be a 241.6. It could or couldn't be a 240 case. 
I know different departments have come down differently on things that have uh, gravity has rolled down these huge objects. Uh, I think there's one well-known one, I'm drawing a blank on it. It was a huge coil uh, of something uh, like it wasn't, it was either a wire or something that was rolled and rolled and rolled a massive amount and that caused an injury. And the issue was whether it was um, height related or not when it rolled down the ramp. And I forget how that case came out, but I do know one of the things you are absolutely gonna learn is that fact patterns, courts come down differently on fact patterns that may seem similar just because of one fact. Uh, and the different departments are gonna come down differently. The four departments in our state on different same fact pattern, they could come down differently, okay? All right, John is asking where an aircraft catering employee falls off the back of a catering truck after servicing an aircraft and claims that slippery substances on the aircraft and the truck cause him to slip and fall with the non-delegable duty is the owner of the airport where the plane is parked. Great question. So if I'm hearing you right, it seems like uh, they're working on the aircraft and then they went back to the truck or they were, yep, they were servicing it and it was just a fall off the back of a catering truck. I don't see this as a 240 case. Um, I don't think that they're doing renovation work, repair work. I think if they were on the aircraft at a height and fell, uh, or actually working on the aircraft, and you can equate the aircraft to a renovation or a construction project, which might be a might be a tough one there. My gut tells me you don't have a, a labor law case here. My gut tells me that you either have a negligence case, maybe a 200 case, knowing if it was slippery, they failed to take reasonable steps, um, certainly a comp case, but I don't think the owner of the aircraft uh, is going to have any non-delegable duty here uh, as far as this fact pattern, but good thinking. And that's, you always want to try and explore it. And I could be wrong. So keep digging, but my gut tells me it's not one. All right. Terrence is saying OSHA violation is not negligence per se in New York. Um, all right. It has to be a New York law in New York, whereas OSHA is a federal in theory, uh, a violation of uh, the federal uh, labor uh, work laws. All right. Um, all right. Let's see. Where are we going next? Does the Department of Buildings investigate construction accidents within the city of New York? Terrence is asking. Yeah, it could be. It could be. It depends what, you know, how related the fact pattern is. So I don't think the Department of Buildings would be looking at Gary's aerial lift case, but I think if it was a, you know, an elevator shaft that was being renovated in a big building and they had to comply with certain building codes and uh, the structure of the shaft collapsed and fell or someone was working on it. I could certainly see a situation where the Department of Buildings would be looking into that also. So you definitely wanna search for any violations uh, from the Department of Buildings um, to see if, uh, if they pertain to your case. All right. New, Daniel saying New York workers' comp law prohibits suit against the employer unless the employer was uninsured. Great point. So if there's no comp insurance and the employer has no insurance, no comp coverage, then you're free to go under the, you know, there's no bar of the comp law because in theory, you're given the remedy of workers' compensation benefits where you do not need to prove fault. 
now, if you do not have that benefit of getting workers' compensation benefits, then you do have to uh, pursue uh, a claim. And that's why you can bring these cases. Good point, Daniel. Thanks for bringing that up. All right. Um, Arvind, worker falls off a ladder and suffers injuries. All right. So right off the bat, you're thinking 240. Insurance carrier paid out for medical treatment and lost wages for the injury worker is now seeking reimbursement from the owner of the job site for the monies paid out. Is there non-delegable duty on the owner of the job site under 241? If I understand you correctly, if there is an, if the work on the ladder, you can tie into one of the categories that the labor law 240 covers, renovation, alteration, painting, cleaning, okay? as opposed to going up just to change a light bulb, all right? If it's just an employee, employer, his job is to go in and change light bulbs as routine maintenance, and he's up on a ladder, and while changing the light bulb falls, it's just going to be a comp case. If it's part of renovation work or alteration work or painting work, and they're up on the ladder, and they fall off the ladder, then it's going to be a 240 case, and the owner is going to have a non-delegable duty so you're going to bring the owner in, and I would imagine the workers' compensation carrier for the employee's employer, for the employer, that's who's going to be paying for the medical treatment and the economic loss, the basic economic loss. They're going to assert a lien, a workers' compensation lien against any recovery against the owner who has a non-delegable duty. And this is a scenario we regularly see. In Gary's case, his employer, Coordinated Metals, paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars in uh, medical payments and treatment and a loan. And so when we settled the case against the owner and the GC, uh, there was a huge lien that we had to resolve that workers' compensation, uh, they have a right to, as a matter of right, to get back out of the settlement. So yes, that's how that works in these cases, just like you described it. Um, Terrence is asking if there's any video of the accident. If you're asking about in Gary's case with the lift, there was not any video. And again, that was in 2014. In the last eight years, there's been a lot more videos put up everywhere. Um, I actually, I have a video of a case I'm handling right now where a worker is up on a roof doing roofing, uh, and it's up in Rockland or Orange County and no protective devices, no tying off, no harness, no scaffolding, and he falls off the roof and he died. Uh, and we got the video from doing a good investigation, and it was from another building in the complex, happened to catch it. So there's a lot more video out there these days. So you always, always, always want to have an investigator canvas for video, regardless of the type of accident. If there's any buildings around, homes around, commercial properties, you'd be amazed what can get caught on the videos. All right, um, any other questions you'd like me to answer? I've got a few minutes left. Um, so Samantha's asking on my OSHA report in the motion. Yeah, they pushed back. We put in the, the citations and all of that and they pushed back saying it's not admissible. And I don't think the court ruled on the admissibility. They were looking mostly as to the labor law cases. So there wasn't a decision on that, unfortunately. Okay. All right. Well, it looks like we're going to wrap it up now. 
And uh, Michelle, uh, if you want, you can give a code and then, um, oh, then runner is the case, Steve is saying, with the spool rolled down. Okay, thank you. That, that's why I recognize it. All right, a couple more questions, Andrew. Okay, yeah, so thank you, Michelle. So Linda is asking, where do I obtain funding or where does one obtain funding to pay for investigations? So generally that's self-funded. We self-fund all of our cases. Uh, and that's why when it's a big case, you have to make a financial commitment and investment to do it. Uh, trust me, it wasn't cheap to fly in Les Knoll and have him evaluate and generate a report and look into it and to pay for investigators, to scan for footage and all of that. Uh, but on a big case, you have to inv invest the money uh, for your clients to get that return. Uh, if you are not in a place to invest it and you don't have the funds or access to funds to invest in a case that you think warrants it, then my recommendation is you refer that case uh, to a firm. You can refer it to me or to other firms if you have a relationship with them who you know do work like my firm does. But we get a lot of cases like that, that a, a lawyer's handling, maybe they're a solo practitioner, they see a case like Gary's case and they say, I'm just not going to have the funding, the finances to invest in this. Um, so I want to team up with uh, a firm who can, and then you can work on a referral fee arrangement, uh, which I talk about in my podcast on referrals, which you can take a look at how that works, uh, or you can get involved and work on the case and share in the fees and share in the work. Uh, we work in different ways with lots of lawyers. So I'd encourage any of you who have a potential big case, um, don't try and wing it. Don't try and do it without spending the money and investing in it. You're going to get a much better return uh, if you join forces with a firm that can really work it up, invest it properly, and uh, get the client the recovery that they deserve at the end of the day. Um, so with that, I'm going to thank you all for your patience. I'm going to encourage you all again to join the Academy. I'm going to ask you if you're listening on the podcast, uh, please, or if you have listened, please just go on Google reviews or podcast reviews and give me a nice review of five star that helps with all the rankings. So I can be the most dominant New York trial lawyer podcast in New York that there is. I'm probably the only one that there is, but there may be <laughs> so thank you all. I look forward to seeing everybody on November 2nd. We're talking about doing, preparing and conducting depositions in a construction accident injury case. Have a great week.